Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Firstly, it's not Dave and McLean that's over the other end. It's Ewan Mitchell. Hello, Ewan. Hi, Jan. It's great to see you. I haven't uh, been in since the Subscribathon since June, so it's nice to be back in familiar territory. Yeah, lovely. And who have you brought in apart from the furniture wrecker? The wonderful (laughs) Jaden Carroll. And we almost need a drum roll because this is his first book. So it is a wonderful gift book. It is for dog lovers and it's called Definitely the Best Dogs of All Time. And it's published by Scribe Publications. So welcome to Publish or Not, Jaden Carroll. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been great to be here. Fantastic. Now, the uh, background of this book... Um, how did you come to write a book specifically about dogs? Well, it was a little bit of a different pathway to getting um, this book published. I, full disclaimer, I actually work as a publicist for Scribe, the publisher. Okay. Yeah. And um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a meeting at the start of the year, Henry Rosenblum, the publisher, was lamenting the lack of giftable books that oh, we had yeah. at our end of year. And I, just as a joke, said, what about a book about dogs. It was almost like, have you seen that? Um, so that, just as a joke, that, that Tarko's ad where she said, <laughs> yeah. "Why can't we do both?" And it was like a yeah. cheer went, <laughs> went up. And I was suggesting it as someone out, like a you know someone yeah. else to write it. But I wrote a proposal and uh, I wrote a couple of chapter samples and yeah. sent it around, and um, and they really loved it. So they they commissioned it and they said, "Can you can you actually write it?" I said, "Okay, Absolutely. a couple of sample chapters so about specific dogs. Yeah, so who, who yeah. are dogs you led with? Um, I think I." Well, I think that Hachiko was was probably the the dog that you know got it stuck in my mind. I've always loved that story, and I now I can see too because although we're on air uh, mm-hmm. to our listeners, uh, Jaden has a tattoo on his right forearm of a aforementioned dog. Let's hear about is it Hachiko? Hachiko, yeah. Hachiko. Yeah. Let's hear about Hachiko's story, who really has kicked all this off. Yeah. Or so. There, there was actually a film um, made starring Richard Gere called Hatchie, which you know your listeners might have seen. It's a it's a very sad and weepy film. And, okay, yeah, yeah, pulls all the heartstrings. But Hachiko, that was an Americanized version. Hachiko was actually a Japanese Akita dog um, living in Shibuya um, in Japan, yeah. um, who was owned by a university professor named Professor Ueno, um, who worked at um, worked at the local university. Every day he would travel by train to work, and Hachiko would. Um, um, come accompany him to the train station and wait for him to come home and walk home with him. And would he wait on the station all day or come back at a? At I think that he. I think that he actually came back home yeah. um, so at, at first. But one one day, um, the professor had a heart attack and sadly died at work, and of course never came home. So mm. Hachiko actually waited at the tr- at the train station for nine years <laughs> and oh. became this amazing symbol of um, unconditional love, devotion, yeah. and loyalty um, in Japan. And while he was still alive, became very, very famous. And um, they built a monument to him at the train station wow. while he was still there. That yeah. people would come and and feed him and pay, you know, their respects. And um, so he was a celebrity. He just was waiting. Yeah. Um, and then uh, after um, 
after he died, there's, there's a, these amazing pictures of um, thousands of people flocking to the station to pay tribute to, to Hachiko. Yeah. And then many, many years later, um, uh, the Japanese public broadcaster uncovered a, um, a recording of Hachiko's bark. And in a very publicised <laughs> very publicised day, they broadcast this restored recording yeah. over the airwaves. And, and, and you this know, was only recently, wasn't it? I mean, uh, relatively. Yeah, relatively, like in yeah. the last 30 years or so. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, um, I mean, Hachiko died in, in the ni- early 1930s and yeah, was yeah. living in the 1920s and so 30s. So it was post-World yeah, War II. Yeah, they had this yeah. recording they found. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And yeah. I just thought that that was such a, a, a brilliant oh, yeah. story. And there are, you know, there's, there's films made about it. There, there's an episode of the TV series Futurama, which is very heavily influenced by that story. Oh, well, I've got to look out for that one. Have you seen that one, Jen? No, no. I have not. <laughs> so, I, so I think that that was a story that got me really in. I was like, yeah. I, if, if there's a book about the best dogs, that, that dog yeah. has to be in it. Okay. Yeah. Now we won't uh, do too many spoilers about the uh, these wonderful dog stories. But uh, in your answer there, you mentioned something about unconditional love and loyalty, and uh, I'm going to jump to a question I had for later. But uh, have, I'm sure we know people who have been more affected by the death of their dog than relatives. <laughs> or maybe it's just some of the people I know. Have you come across that? And if so, why do you think that's so, that you can be more affected by the death of a dog than a relative? Well, it's funny you, could, you should say that. I remember um, the first dog that I kind of grew up with um, was a boxer named Zorro. And I lived with my grandparents for um, for a, a number of years growing up, and he was their dog. And when Zorro passed away, my grandfather, while, while, while he was burying Zorro, Cry, cried and apparently he didn't even cry at his parents' funeral. It was the the, yeah. the kind of connection was so strong, and I, I do think that you know it is that kind of unconditional love yeah. that, that yeah. they they display. There's there's not, uh, and I don't want to you know minimise his relationship with his with his parents, but th- those those bonds that can develop are, are yeah. very very strong. Well, I mean, it's a a rare relationship between relatives that is. Uh, not fraught with some sort of politics or whatever, but with dogs, you've got that unconditional loyalty and love. Yeah, yeah and, yeah. you know, there's very little jealousy or complexity yeah. or there's, you know, um, yeah, it's all it's all very straightforward, which can be refreshing and, and a lovely thing. Now, ironically, I, I hope I'm using the term correctly when I say that, ironically, you actually don't own a dog yourself. No, I don't. And... Um, other than the somewhat, somewhat, <laughs> somewhat sheepishly, but I am a, a renter, and so I've moved from house ah, to house in the last a, yeah. few few years. So, uh, by way of responsibility, mm. um, I, yeah. I haven't I haven't yeah. gotten a dog, but um, I, d- I do believe that the rental laws have changed recently, and Ooh. so the next lease that I sign on to, I will mm. be able to have a dog without having to hide it in yeah. you know a shed <laughs> somewhere <laughs> if the landlord ever comes over. All right, so what breed of dog might you buy if um, you do manage to uh, squeeze one in? Oh, there are so, there are so many. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I really, it's, it's I, I do love, I do love Staffies. Um, I've got a particular fondness for black Labradors as well. Oh, they're yeah. they're really yeah. beautiful. Um, I don't know. I think, greyhounds as well. I mean, there are yeah. a lot of them that have come from the racing yeah. industry that um, that need um, adoption and rehoming. So they and and they are uh, beautiful dogs. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they are fantastic. Yeah. I mean, there's such a range of choice, and there is a world of uh, small dogs and bigger dogs. And before we went in air, we were talking about a public debate that was aired recently about which is better, big or small dogs. Do you have a position on that? I don't. I don't no. actually. I'm not going to. I'm not going to delve. Yeah, I'm not going to delve into that debate. To be honest, because <laughs> in, in your 
your book. Uh, I'm speaking with Jaden Carroll about his uh, wonderful first book, Definitely the Best Dogs of All Time. You have a range of big and small dogs, but I do want to focus on, without giving too much away, I do want to focus on three dogs that you have in your book. And without going into the specifics, I was amazed to find in America, as you'd expect, there are three dog mayors, and they are legitimately elected mayors because there is no rule, apparently, in some of these uh, towns that the representative can't be non-human. So I'm wondering, do you see there being a future for dogs in Australian politics? Well, I actually haven't researched whether that's possible in Australia. I'd, yeah. I'd be very keen to find out, perhaps. Um, well, yeah, there are three mayors yeah. in, um, in, in the States. There's, there's Duke, who's the mayor of Cormorant, Minnesota. Um, there's a mayor of rabbit hash, Brynneth Paltrow, spelled P-A-W, pun. Uh, (laughs) And there's Max, who's the mayor of Idlewild. And, yeah, there's nothing in the legislature. And Max has got a tie on, has he? you got a great photo of him with his tie on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very, very dashing. I don't know what that says about the, um, you know, people's faith in the political system. And, and um, as I say in the book, it's not the first time that animals have been elected. There was a rhinoceros elected to city council yeah. in Sao Paulo. Um, yeah, and that was in the 50s, wasn't it? In the in 50s. A, as a protest? It was a protest um, against um, government corruption and, you know, yeah. the wealthy being in power and taking money from the poor. So they just, they just like, it was a protest vote for a, um, a rhinoceros in the local yeah. city, city zoo. And it got up and yeah. yeah well has it crossed your mind to start a dog party the australian dogs party uh, the adp oh it, it actually hasn't but um i'll, <laughs> I'll take that under consideration well, yeah. you know uh, maybe talk to the uh what is it, the vote whisperer the upper house whisperer and um see if you know get yeah. uh, actually you might get more than uh, just a few votes for the party like that you might end up holding balance of power yeah well who knows these days <laughs> Well, uh, and thinking that what was a uh, 19-year-old who almost stole the uh, Blue Ribbon Liberal seat at the Victorian election last weekend, and the votes did swing back to the Liberal Party, the postal ones, but he was uh, a young guy who wasn't expecting to win, and he almost won, and he didn't put any effort into his campaign. No disrespect, he just wasn't expecting to win, so it was just a minimal campaign. He almost got over the line. Maybe there's something in the Australian Dogs Party Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I read about that one um, I don't know I mean yeah I guess he would have been happy to be elected but very very surprised if it <laughs> had yeah. happened thrown in the deep end I reckon yeah. but I reckon it's worth looking up whether members or elected members have to be human or not um, because I mean there's a grey area as a perhaps we all know, in football club membership. You know how many pets are members of football clubs? No, I don't. There you go. Well, uh, they're not meant to be included in the official tally. So last year when Richmond went over 100,000 for the first time of any AFL club, of course, some of the rivals are saying, how many of them are pets? And uh, Richmond replied saying, oh, no, we haven't counted the pet memberships in there. And so I believe there are a lot of pet memberships of football clubs. If they can join football clubs, why can't they join Parliament? That's a good question. We'll find out. (laughs) Yeah, I think we need further research on that. uh, There's a couple of specifics that I wanted to ask you about. I was shocked to know that the St Bernard's dogs on the border between Italy and Switzerland, so the ones actually doing that uh, time-honoured role, they do not actually carry whiskey and rum. They don't. That's that's a myth that's been popular popularized, right. and it's an image that kind of endures. And um, yeah. you know, I think that it's a, a it's quite a nice 
comforting image, but it's yeah. but it's never happened. They never carried the the, the barrels of brandy around so in their. So, what did they do for people lost in the snow on those treacherous passes? Well, they would actually they, they um they, they were from a hospice, the Saint Bernard Hospice, hence the name of the the name of the dog, which was yeah. up high in the in the Swiss Alps, and um and they yeah. would actually go out into the snow and track down lost wanderers and travellers and um and and track them down and bring them back. So they were very yeah that. They were very good at their jobs. But there was no alcohol involved. There was no alcohol involved. In fact, that would be bad, wouldn't it, if you had alcohol yeah. and you had exposure? Yeah, well, yeah. it actually lowers your blood temperature, so... Oh, okay. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, that's not good. Yeah. Now, there was... A, and I don't want to give too much away, but I was shocked to find that um, it looks like it's the end of the corgis for Queen Elizabeth II. Well, yeah, the, um, the, the first corgi, Susan, um, was the first in a long reign of um, royal corgis, and um, I don't think that she was convinced that um, Prince Charles or um, or the grandkids would um, carry <laughs> on the corgi them. line. So she so she ditched them, and the last one died this year. So I think this year, yeah. yeah. But I believe there's a, a couple of crossbreeds from the corgis. Yeah, there are. They're, they're called dorgies, which Dorgis is a Daskin. Cross yeah. Corgi? Yeah. 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 Dax and uh, Corgi. Yeah. Oh, yeah. the doggies. Yeah. Okay. Do you have an, uh, an opinion on designer dogs? Like, are they from the shallow end of the gene pool or... Oh, I, I mean, I do, I do know that there are... Um, that there are um, there are dogs that have terrible hip problems yeah. from the, from breeding. Well, actually, the crossbreeds could actually help that, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And um, I've read yeah. shocking things about um, you know pugs when they sneeze, their oh. eyes are in danger mm. of actually coming yeah. out. So, so yeah, it can um, yeah. yeah, not a, not a great scene. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I run into a few Labradoodles at the park with my dog, Bert, and he's a brown Labrador, and sometimes we just think, oh, really? Uh, I don't think this mix is working. But uh, on to other things. I didn't, didn't want to bring my views into it there. I did want to talk about another Labrador, though, Bouncer. Oh, and yeah. how on earth did you find that Bouncer, who was, of course, the dog on Neighbours from the late 80s to the early 90s, not only did Bouncer have a following around the world, how did you find out that he was paid more than a lot of the human actors on Neighbours? Well, that was actually from from a um, from an article in the Age back in oh. back when he was on the on the show, and that was an interview with his trainer. And yes, he was paid between one hundred and two thousand, one hundred thousand and two hundred thousand dollars per season, and that was more than most of the other. <laughs> Actors were paid. This was it. I mean, Kylie left in 1987 or 88. So it was yeah. in, in big ticket um, yeah. actors were on the show, oh, on the yeah. show there. And it was big in uh, England by that stage. Yeah, so huge. I, I don't think it had broken yeah. America or had it? At, by uh, no, no. It was huge in England by then. Yeah. And apparently Bouncer re- received more fan mail than the other cast members as well. Huge. Well, I, th- I think that he was kind of the moral compass on the show, to be honest. He was the one who made, <laughs> the he was the one who made friends with Mrs. Mangle, who was, you know, the, the arch villain of the street, the old... The, the old lady who had meddled in everyone's business. Her only friend was Bouncer. Um, yeah. Bouncer saved Madge from a kitchen fire. Called, oh, that's called triple zero with his paws. And there was some uh, fantasy he had as well, didn't he, Bouncer, about marrying the dog next door? Yeah, or... and that was... Uh, I think that that's why I decided to include Bouncer, because there's this fantastic <laughs> scene. You'd have to look it up on YouTube. I think you can call it... Um, <laughs> if you type in Bouncer's dream, um, basic, basically the... the the series broke with all of the conventions of what uh, what it was to date and decided to go inside Bouncer's head. That They were sitting um, watching a, um, a wedding video and Bouncer drifts off to sleep and the camera pans into Bouncer's head and um, he's running through this what looks like a warped play school set, um, goes to... Um, pans across to him and Rosie, who's the border collie next door, ah. getting 
playing around, then getting married and then having puppies and then it just pans back out like nothing ever happened. Uh, the, um, it, it was all psychedelic. Yeah, it was totally baked. <laughs> but when neighbours went from modernism into postmodernism. Yeah, anything was possible after that, I reckon. <laughs> As it is in postmodernism. Now, on, that's probably a good lead into my next question because we've got quite a few uh, dog philosophers among our lins- listeners. And I want to read an extract that you've included in your book. It's just a few lines, and it's from uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, and I'm sure most of you know him as uh, one of Germany's uh, leading philosophers in the 1800s. He didn't much like uh, Prussian uh, society at the time, but uh, very critical of it. Um, but... He also suffered a great deal of pain and existential angst. And this is a quote which you've included in your book, Jaden. I have given a name to my pain and call it dog. It's just as faithful, just as obtrusive and shameless, just as entertaining, just as clever as any other dog. Did the dog exist? Well, that, um, we'll never know, will we? So it's an ex- <laughs> it's, he's an existential dog. Okay, which leads me into the next part of that question. The 1930s. Uh, whoa, hang on. We've run out of time to ask that, but I was going to ask about Churchill's black dog. So uh, we'll have to leave it there. Jaden Carroll's wonderful book, illustrated by Molly Dyson. The out- illustrations are fantastic. Very uh, lucky to have oh, Molly on board with this. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, and out now uh, from Scribe Publications. Thank you very much, Jaden. Thanks so much for having me. Jan. Well, hopefully I've got uh, Jane Harper on the line. Hello, Jane. Hello. Oh, good. Hello. Good. We've been talking about dogs and very sadly about them dying. And in your book, there's a dog that gets baited. Yes, yes. Well, I thought um, my book, The Lost Man, is set in outback Queensland on a remote cattle station. And um, out there, you know, companion dogs are very common. And particularly in an isolated area, I think become very close to, you know, the family. So, you know, one sadly... um, for any reason, I think a huge loss for them, and especially for Nathan. Now, this is Nathan Bright, who the dog was the only real contact that he had. He'd been ostracised from the town. Yes, so um, the Lost Man is an Australian mystery, and it follows the story of um, the three brothers um, who work in this you know, remote sort of cattle station area. And Nathan is um, the oldest of three brothers, and he's um, for various reasons, um, very isolated, more isolated than a lot of people in this community. And, you know, this is a very isolated community already. Um, so he, he really doesn't have a lot of um, a lot of people to talk to or a lot of support system. And when one of his brothers is found dead, it, it sort of sets off this whole, uh, a bit of a spiral for him um, in his social finances. Absolutely. Now, we should say that you in uh, finding out all the setting for this book, The um, the Lost Man, you went to Birdsville and then drove 900 kilometres further west into incredible country. Yeah, I, I did um, just um, had a, an amazing opportunity to research this book um, because I live in Melbourne, which is obviously very different from that, that Queensland. Um, but um, I did a lot of reading around the subjects and I spoke to a lot of people. And one of the people I spoke to was this um, incredible man called um, Neil McShane, who is a retired cop. And he was the um, only cop in Birdsville for 10 years, single-handedly policing an area the size of Victoria. So I, I went up to Queensland and I met him and he, he and I went to this um, amazing sort of 
mini road trip, I suppose you call it. And when he told me his stories and I asked him a lot of questions about procedures and just the lifestyle out there. Well, of course, Jane Harper is known for a crime. And the first a crime, well, we, we start the book really at a gravesite, at, the, the, um, at a headstone. Who was the headstone for? So the headstone um, in the book is um, is a fictional headstone, as is you know everything in the book. It's all it's all fictional, but it's based on um, something I discovered um, during my research, which was this concept of lonely graves. And these lonely graves are peppered throughout the outback, um, where someone has died sort of suddenly or unexpectedly, and they've been buried where they died. And then if they're lucky, someone will come along later, maybe a family or friends, and will put up some sort of memorial. So it's um, it's just a, 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 a an idea that I thought was sort of so striking and captivating yeah. um, that I really wanted to use it. And I use it in the sense of the, in the book um, as a kind of, it's one of the few man-made landmarks in this area um, and it's on the family's property and there's a lot of stories going around about who's buried there and, and what became of the person who, um, you know, who, who died there. And, and there's so it, many different sort of stories. The family. Yeah, there's just sort of so many different stories about just well, how this stockman died. Nearly as many stories that come up to the next death. Now, it's, it's a body's found nine kilometres kilometers away from this gravestone. Who's died? Who have you killed, Jane Harper? <laughs> so the, um, the book opens with the death of um, the middle brother in his family. So it's a man called Cameron Bright, and he um, runs the, um, the family property and has spent his whole life in the outback. Um, so he's very familiar with the area and uh, the risks involved. Um, so when he's found um, at this grave, um, dead from exposure um, and separated from his car and with no real surprise around him, it, it prompts a lot of questions in his brother's mind about, about what happened. And that, that, that sort of sets them, um, you know, wondering, you know, what sort of led to, to Cameron's death. Look, it is fascinating, and Cameron is also, in his life, has been responsible for making this headstone quite iconic. Yeah, so um, with the headstone, I, I had um, had quite an interesting time writing about that in terms of exploring the ways the families react to it, because it is one of the few kind of landmarks um on this on this property, and the, the the various members of family, um, three brothers and their their parents, and um, Cameron's wife and his children, they all sort of react to this headstone in different mm. ways. And Cameron's, um, in particular, has quite a close connection with it because he um, is something of an amateur artist, and he painted the headstone and had some success with the picture he did. And so it's it's a, sort of a special place to him in some ways. But the family all have their own responses to this area. Look, they do, they do. And uh, will, who could possibly be responsible for this this crime, this death? Well, it looks as if it must have been suicide and uh, Cameron just died from exposure to the heat because this is sort of something that you do so well too, Jane Harper. You give us this sense of openness and heat and strength of the sun and necessity to drink water and, well, Cameron died although his car was fully equipped with everything he should know to have survival. So we have Nathan, his older brother, 
wondering why. And especially with Nathan's young son, Xander, coming back, they're all the family are getting together for only one reason, and that's Christmas. Now, this was a really very clever plotting to get even um, Xander back onto the onto the property. Where does he usually live? Yeah, so um, I want to um, explore Nathan's backstory. Nathan's the main character, and I want to give him quite you know a rich kind of um, life. Um, and as part of that, he has a relationship with. Um, his son, Xander, who was 16, and normally lives, um, you know, 1,500 kilometres away in Brisbane with his um, Nathan's ex-wife. And I really enjoyed writing about this pair. I think the father-son mm-hmm. relationship between them was such a joy to write. And I think, but also very bittersweet because Nathan's come to the realisation that his son is getting older and um, naturally moving on with his own life. And there, there probably only will be limited opportunities for, for them to maybe see each other, um, as I think many parents do when their, their children start to grow up and, you know, move away. Oh, yes. So they even um, Xander, the, the son, sort of thinks there's something odd about his uncle Cameron dying or suiciding. So they, they do a man thing. They, they search a shed together just to keep, you know, next door to each other. And, and you can sort of see that it does open up talks as, as, as the book goes on. Um, the thing about so much of this book, and you, you do it so well, you realise that their father has not been the perfect father, especially when the younger brother, Bub, who's, you know, sort of 30-ish, is seen to be urinating on his father's grave. So, and you know that um, Nathan wants to do everything for his son, Xander, that his father didn't want to do for him. But his father's dead, so who possibly did this murder? Oh, look, very clever. You also bring in uh, two pretty useless backpackers, Simon and Kate. Yeah, well, when I was um, out there researching, I mean, it's sort of part of the research was getting a lot of the technical aspects right, you know, the practicalities of life on the land and um, who, you know, you need to run these places and um, what jobs there are. And, um, you know, part of that is um, you're having casual help when you need it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the times the families take on a, a great deal of the work um, but you do have people coming and going. So even though it feels like quite a, an isolated region, um, there is actually a fair bit of movement in terms of, you know, casual workers and um, visitors and contractors and, and people who who stay for a little while and then move on um, in contrast with the family who were, you know, born and bred, live and die there. Yeah. The two young girls, well, we know, we find out that um, Ilsa had a brief liaison prior to marrying Cameron and they've got two uh, oh, Cameron and, and um, Ilsa have two child, two daughters together and these two young girls know that this backpacker Katie says she's a teacher but she's a terrible teacher. They tell Nathan about their things being stolen someone sneaking about at night and Sophie is very sensitive about a broken arm and Lo is drawing very sad pictures and mentions Daddy's secret and these girls wonder if it's the stockman coming back. This was really quite eerie, all of this. You know, you had me guessing, Jane Harper. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I, I, I really wanted to sort of, in this book, capture that real sense of, I suppose, the isolation and what that does psychologically to people. Because, you know, in a city, we're lucky enough to be 
you know, surrounded by people a lot of the time and you can step out, out of your door and there's, you know, mobile reception and there's um, coffee shops and, you know, there's a lot of contacts. And it's very rare for us in modern day, I think, to be um, really as isolated as, as the lifestyles of the people who live in, in you know, in this sort of outback mm. community. Um, and I, I was sort of, um, I guess, wanted to yeah, yeah, really... You know, throughout the book, really bring out the sort of the psychology behind that, and and what that actually means, you know, in day to day practicality and also emotionally to to be quite that cut off. And of course, being a crime novel, we have to wonder who's going to inherit Burley Downs. It's three and a half thousand square mile, kilometres big, with three thousand Herefords. Oh, look, I you had me guessing, Jane, and I loved it. I loved the way that it all worked out, but I, I was taken down the garden path many a time. Just <laughs> such a fantastic book. Another fabulous crime novel matching the dry and the force of nature. Jane Harper's The Lost Man is about heat, dust and horizon. Three brothers, one death and no answers. Jane Harper, thank you very, very much for